Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles and from the Big Apple in New York City, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I am Dave, the caregiver's caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, Adrian Guberg at thecaregiverspace.org. Coming to you live <laughs> and on demand 24-7 on numerous syndicated radio and podcast networks on 26 global audio and video platforms. I'm talking so fast iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, and a whole bunch more. I'm not going to name them all. It, it was easy when we only had four or five, but now we have 26. In fact, we're proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM, and number two caregiver podcast on Feedspot out of the top 60, and number two caregiver podcast on CaringVillage.com. And we have an especially exciting show for you planned today, don't we, Adrian? Of course we do. Adrian, I can't hear you. Of course we do. <laughs> All right, just speak up like that. <laughs> uh, we are meeting Dr. Nina Ahuja. <laughs> That's well done. Letter. Great. <laughs> That's right. Ahuja was born in Timmins, Ontario, and raised on the property of a gold mine. Yay, another Canadian on a gold mine. In neighboring small town, South Porcupine, where when she graduated high school in 1991, she moved down south, where she completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Waterloo, you and Napoleon. Uh, from there, studies led her to McMaster University for Medical School and then University of Ottawa, where she completed residency in, in something. She began her <laughs> surgical practice in Hamilton in 2003. Just what did you complete your residency in, doctor? So I completed my residency in ophthalmology, which is a specialty oh, focusing on eye diseases and eye surgery, yes. <laughs> ophthalmology. I wonder why I didn't recognize how to say that. I, I've been to an ophthalmologist, so I know. <laughs> yes, well, it so has so many ancient, but... <laughs> Welcome to the show. We were off to a rough start there, but we're we're off and running now. Um, I often like to ask my guest, just who is Dr. Aja? Wait a minute, gotta have it in front of me before I say it. Ahuja, just who is Dr. Ahuja, <laughs> and why was she placed on this earth? Uh, sure. Wow, that's a deep question. <laughs> we start out deeper and then we go deeper. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So um, Dr. Ahuja is uh, someone who's very passionate about wanting to make a difference uh, and impact people in their day-to-day -day lives and the small things to the large things. Uh, mm -hmm. And that drew me into healthcare, which is, of course, the profession where we care for others. And through that, I've found different avenues to contribute in other ways through education, uh, and also uh, encouraging and supporting leadership development for colleagues within the healthcare system to really be able to optimize all of our abilities to uh, give back to our patients and care for them the best that we can. Wow, that's a good answer. 
So, um, how old were you when you decided that you wanted to be an eye doctor? Funny enough, you know, I always noticed eyes in people since the time that I was younger. It was the first feature that I've always, uh, you know, been aware of. Um, so always fascinated with that. In high school, I did a project as well uh, where we studied the senses and were, you know, asked to select one. I selected sight. I made my own model of an eyeball using a styrofoam ball and using magic marker to create a blue iris and uh, taking one of those plastic little sheets of paper that they used to write on with those overhead projectors and made a cornea out of it. So, so there was an interest in eyes right from the start. When I went to a university at University of Waterloo, they had the only English-speaking optometry program in the country. So I had an opportunity to explore that. I had that inclination when I went to university. Then discovered that I really do enjoy doing things with my hands. And I loved the idea of perhaps doing something surgical. That drew me into medical school. And then when I was in medical school, I was drawn full circle back to eyes when I did an elective in ophthalmology and was just fascinated by the equipment that they used and just, you know, the type of surgery that it was and how fine it is and how impactful it is also for people who have uh, cataracts, for example, you do the surgery and their sight is, you know, very restored often uh, quite soon after surgery. So it was it seemed to be a very gratifying profession. Yeah, it sounds like it. And you have beautiful eyes, by the way. Oh, I thank you. <laughs> so if you're making eyeballs at the age of, I don't know, uh, how old were you? Oh, that would have been 13. Sorry, I did not answer 13, that part. 13, and it was meant to be that you are where exactly you are meant to be. Yes. And so um, I want to ask you, uh, because mm -hmm. our audience are burned out caregivers, uh, what is your connection to caregiving, or do you have one, or are we just here to talk about uh, eye ailments of elderly people? Well, I think there is a connection to caregiving from a professional standpoint. Um, you know, I'm blessed to have uh, healthy parents, and so we're, you know, we support each other, and I visit, and, and we do all of those things. But it's not a caretaking role in the way that uh, many of your audience members are um, experiencing that. But as a healthcare professional and provider, there's certainly that element of supporting caregivers. Uh, as an ophthalmologist, much of my population is the senior population, and so a lot of the time, family members are coming to those appointments, and it's an opportunity for me to be able to offer guidance, support, some education to them to help them, in turn, provide care to, to the, their loved ones in a way that is hopefully more comfortable for, for all of them, really. Maybe it's a coincidence, but my wife, uh, you know, she had cataract surgery, uh, going to say recently, but gosh, it has to be at least five years now. And um, as we were looking for an ophthalmologist, many of them were of Indian descent, and, and we have a very good Indian doctor, um, Dr. Tuli, T-U-L-I. And so uh, is it um, common in India for uh, kids growing up and they want to be eye doctors? <laughs> Um, I don't think it's common necessarily to be eye doctors. I certainly can't speak for the entire population, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, education is as like everywhere is is very emphasized, and so many uh, people of Indian descent go into professions like medicine and teaching and law and all the others. Um, but it's it is something that um, is stimulating in different ways, where you've got the intellectual stimulation, you've got the challenge of doing fine procedures. Uh, there's all there's always new technology that's on the forefront, and so there's lots of um, opportunity for learning there as well. So it works out quite nicely in that sense. Um, eyes just happen to be something that uh, 
you know, you've, you've come across a lot of Indian uh, surgeons, eye surgeons, and I know of a few. In fact, I trained under a Dr. Thule when I was at University of Ottawa. <laughs> Perhaps not even likely Perhaps. the same person. <laughs> Let's talk about some things that uh, my caregiver population would be interested in. I'm sure many of, um, Adrian, you would maybe agree with this, many of the loved ones of caregivers are elderly. Would you say 50% or more? Maybe 75%. What do you think? Um, I don't know I the statistic. Percent. I think louder, louder, more, louder. I think there were more, uh, I think there were more people than you get, than you often credit who were taking mm -hmm. care of people other than the elderly. So I would say about 60%. It's, yeah, it's so, a great deal. And it's not just cataracts. I had my cataracts done in in December and February this year. Oh, um, yeah. But I, I've i been nearsighted, terribly nearsighted all my life. So I did not want a full correction because oh. they said I would be too uncomfortable. But my father had macular degeneration. Yeah. And I know that that's also something that affects the elderly. Yes, absolutely. Coma, there's a lot of different things. What's what are the most common eye issues? And you know, like one, two, three, the top three that um, seniors are often uh, plagued with and need to take care of. Yes. So uh, diabetes, macular degeneration, cataracts, glaucoma. The, the, what you've mentioned pretty much covers the top uh, ailments that are are commonly um, suffered by by patients. So uh, yeah, those are the those would be the top ones. And they're all, they all have diabetes in common? Are they caused by diabetes? No, no, it's, um, so they're basically people who are diabetics because there's a high population of people who are diabetics that tends to be a common cause of uh, blindness. Um, and if it's poorly controlled, then macular degeneration, cataracts, those are all things that come with age, glaucoma as well. There are different risk factors for all of those different conditions. And depending on what that risk profile looks like, you, you can manifest uh, that condition at sooner or later stage in your life, depending on your family history and other uh, conditions as well. So what recommendations would you give a caregiver who's caring for uh, an elderly one that maybe they've never been to an eye doctor, if that's believable, because usually they're they're wearing glasses and they're going to ophthalmologists, right? No, I forget the, the two terms. Optometrists, Op yes. Optometrists, what I meant to say. <laughs> yes. Well, depending on the nature of the eye disease, your the visual experience of, of the person who's got that condition can be different. So for example, if you're looking at something like macular degeneration, that actually affects the central vision. So what that means is that if you know a, a, someone is looking at their grandchild's face, for example, they may not be able to see the face, but they can see the features around it because that central area responsible for focus has been impacted by the macular degeneration. In contrast, if it's glaucoma, in glaucoma what happens is, is the peripheral vision is impacted. So as one advances in that condition, they're able to see almost as though they're looking through a tunnel so that if someone comes up to them from the side, they may not notice it until the very last minute until that person enters the patient's mm -hmm. field of vision. Uh, and then diabetes, there are different manifestations. Some of those also affect that area of the eye that's responsible for focus. Other times you can have a general bleed in the eye that can 
impact the entire visual uh, field, which is that area that we see when we look at something. And so in terms of advice to caregivers, in the case of glaucoma, I think it's very important to be able to be mindful that the person may not see you coming up. And so you may want to use other cues that they can um, rely on so that they're not suddenly startled or surprised by, by your presence. So even just audible cues, for example, tapping on the desk or tapping on the wall as you're approaching them, those are, those are good things to do. And then with central vision issues like macular degeneration, you want to be able to use um, assistant, assisting tools like magnifiers to um, be able to expand things that people are looking at so it, it goes around that central visual field loss. And there are different types of technologies like, uh, you know, the cameras that, or the CCTVs where you can put a book under um, uh, a camera and then it just basically expands everything on a screen so that it's extra large letters. Uh, using large print books, things like that can help in earlier stages where the central vision loss isn't completely compromised. One of the things that I find is very helpful though for both caregivers and the patient themselves is the whole idea of getting used to the fact that things have changed for them. And that's where one of the frameworks that I have, I've created a framework and I like to apply it in these circumstances, uh, that is referred to as ADMIT. Uh, ADMIT is basically a five phase framework. Each phase represents a phase of experience so that when is when one is uh, facing a challenge, you can break it up into these different phases and hopefully help the circumstance feel more manageable by both the patient themselves and the caregiver as well. So I, I can expand that into that framework at some point if you like. So. How trained are the optometrists, um, you know, when someone goes and gets glasses? Are they quick to look for things like glaucoma or um, refer them to an ophthalmologist? Or do you find that they need to be more um, forthcoming in their training or in their ability to recommend them to get uh, help of an expert? Uh, optometrists actually uh, play a very key role in eye care, uh, not just to prescribe glasses. Uh, they actually have a wonderful set of skills where they're able to diagnose <clears throat> abnormalities, recognize abnormalities. Uh, depending on whether you're in states in Canada, there are also different scopes of practice is, what's, is what we refer to it as, where optometrists are able to provide certain medical care as well, up to a certain point. And then um, after that, when it goes beyond their realm of scope, so to speak, that's when the referral goes on to the ophthalmologist, whether it be for more advanced uh, care, advanced medical care, or surgical interventional care. And understand in the states as well, there are some states where optometrists are able to do very, um, some of, some straightforward procedures, uh, but generally speaking, that uh, falls into the realm of ophthalmology, at least in Canada. Yeah, I'll tell you my personal experience. Um, this happened about six or seven years ago. I was starting to see flashes, you know, and I didn't know what it was. It kind of freaked me out. And so I went to the eye doctor and he said, I should see an ophthalmologist because there may be problems with retina. Um, and so I went to see one and I told him, he says, well, that's common. I also looked on the internet and said something about if you see flashes, you just go see a doctor. And uh, he yeah. did some examining and he says, you know, we wanna see if your retina has detached, because sometimes it does if there's trauma or sometimes uh, old age, you know, which hurts a little bit, because I was, I think, 60 something. <laughs> and 
they said that my retina was not uh, detached, it was intact. And um, uh, I told him that I saw a double vision in one of the eyes, and so he, he gave me this thing to look through with a little tiny pinhole, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I could see perfectly clear. And he says, that's why sometimes when you squint, you can see better. And I don't know what happened, but ever since that situation happened, um, I have better vision and I don't need reading glasses anymore. Can you explain that? <laughs> Certainly. And I think, you know, the example that you give of the transition from care from optometry to ophthalmology is, is significant. And that's where, you know, had there been a retinal detachment, um, the ophthalmologist would be able to manage that. And with your respect to your double vision, that's one of the things that's also a key difference between ophthalmology and optometry is ophthalmologists are actually uh, medical doctors. They have an MD degree, whereas an optometrist has an undergraduate degree and then they have their doctor of medicine. But it's not the same as having a medical degree, after which we then do a five-year specialty and further training beyond that also as ophthalmologists. Um, so with respect to... Um, the, uh, I'm sorry, I, I lost the question there in that brief moment. I wanted to know why my vision appears to be oh, yes. better and I don't need reading glasses anymore. Right. Does it have anything to do with what I went through? It and doesn't especially, have especially that pinhole thing where, um, you know, squinting a little, I, I realized the double vision goes away. So what's going on when you're looking through a pinhole that's, right. that makes your vision get better? Yes, so what happens is, first of all, the need to not need reading glasses uh, at this stage. When the lens in the eye naturally develops and starts to form a cataract, you get something that's referred to as second sight, which is where you can actually have your vision improve in ways that you weren't able to see necessarily before. The pinhole, what that does is you've got light that goes into the eye from all directions. When you put a pinhole in front of your eye, you're you're not you're eliminating a lot of the light rays that are coming from random directions and just allowing those few going through those pinholes to go directly back to the retina to allow you to see so that's often something that we use as a tool to see if there is an um, opportunity to improve vision with you know with glasses for example so you can say that it simulates what glasses would do uh, without having glasses on your on your face at the time so he said he did see a cataract, but it was in its early stages. It wasn't uh, bad enough to uh, do anything about. But you think that that cataract is causing me to get better vision? It does up to a point, and then there will come a point where it's not going to work so well for you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if you live long enough, you're getting a cataract. So it's a good thing, really. <laughs> Adrian, any questions? No, I can say that um, since I've had my cataract surgery, my floaters are much worse. I can see my floaters much better. I suppose. And explain my... what floaters are. They're little things that, that like uh, shadows or ghosts. Let's sure. Doctor... So, go ahead. Give us, give us the proper definition, doctor. <laughs> so I'll give you the lowdown so it's relatable. Uh, so I always, when people ask me about floaters, I give the analogy of, of a golf ball. So imagine your eyes like a golf ball. The inside of that golf ball is lined by something like the film of a camera, which we call the retina. And the hollow part of that golf ball is filled with something you can imagine being like clear jello. As time goes on, that jello changes consistency. You get parts that thicken and parts that liquefy. Those little thickened parts are what you see as floaters. And so sometimes as time goes on, if you have something like cataract surgery, it can trigger some of that change. And that's why floaters can sometimes be more prominent. Other times with cataract surgery, 
um, if we go through that analogy, I can explain to you that you can get little um, flecks of cataract sort of going back further back into the eye, which generally absorbs over time if it's relating to the cataract. Uh, would you like to hear the analogy for cataract surgery, which is all about smarties? Yes, we have nothing but time here. <laughs> what the doctor did tell me, he said that uh, eventually, think of my think of my eye as a snow globe, and okay. then floaters would start to settle. Yes. So I'm hoping that that's the case. Is it? Yeah, that's often the case. That's often the case. As the as that jello starts to change consistency and liquefies more, then the, the heavier parts just drop down, and, and it can certainly move out of your field of vision or move out of your central visual axis, anyways. <laughs> and explain what the flashes are, because someone out there might be having flashes like I did. Yes. Yeah, so flashes are basically, if you imagine that um, jello. Uh, ball of jello within the golf ball, as it changes, it shrinks a little bit as well, as it be, parts of it become liquefied and other parts become dense. And so as that's pulling away from the film uh, or the inner lining of the golf ball, uh, that tractional force is what you actually uh, perceive as, um, as a flash. So it's basically mechanical stimulation of the nerves that make up the retina. So it's caused by nerves. It's stimulation of them, yes. It's caused by that traction as, as the... Are any of these things we've spoken about so far reversible or some of them irreversible? Certainly with diabetes, it's diabetic damage to the eyes is preventable um, by tight control of your sugars, by having a healthy, balanced lifestyle, monitoring your sugars regularly, maintaining a routine of exercise um, and balanced eating. Uh, that is definitely something that is highly recommended and you know would you would work in conjunction with your family doctor or endocrinologist or whatever that physician is working with you geriatrician for example as well um, as far as glaucoma goes there's nothing really and and cataracts and um, retinal detachments and whatnot things to prevent that glaucoma you can't really prevent anything if you're diagnosed with it uh, it is a good idea of course to follow the treatment that is recommended by your eye care professional uh, in terms of macular degeneration and cataracts, you know, wearing sunglasses, there is the question of UV light, of course, um, having an impact. Um, that's generally a, a good thing to do anyway for general eye protection. And then again, maintaining a balanced, healthy lifestyle, not smoking. Uh, smoking can actually, particularly for macular degeneration, some of the really? studies show that smoking can actually make the disease progress more quickly. And uh, for macular degeneration, you can use vitamins that are based on uh, the AIRED study, A-R-E-D-S-2, that's the acronym, but that's what the, the label is, that's how the uh, vitamins are labeled in the pharmacies, so that's why I'm using the acronym. But um, that can also be something that uh, is helpful. The studies are suge suggesting that that also delays the progression. And then if you have any of those conditions, making sure that you're having your regular eye checkups with your ophthalmologist or optometrist, depending on how that co-management is set up, if there is co-management uh, in the model, and um, making sure you're following all the recommendations and, and guidelines that your providers are sharing with you. Yeah. Um, well, listen, this is good. Go ahead, Adrian. I just wanted to know if there were any other vitamins that you would recommend in terms of just preserving your vision. Uh, so that it doesn't degenerate even more. And besides carrots? <laughs> well, there are vitamins that people use. Bilberry uh, is an example. Lutein in itself is an example. 
um, they're, they're, that's sort of in the natural um, medicine world. Uh, the studies mm -hmm. behind that, I, I'm not aware of full scientific studies where we look at um, you know, clinical trials and all of that when it comes right. to a lot of supplements. Um, having said that, you know, there's, I don't see a harm in that so long as there's nothing else happening in your system that uh, doesn't make those supplements a good idea. Uh, yeah. But besides that, I think just, you know, eating a good balanced diet, green leafy vegetables, exercise, being aware of healthy lifestyle uh, habits is, is really key. Listen, we're going to take a short break. So we, re we, I really will. we will be right back. <laughs> so don't go away. Dave Nassani, The Caregiver's Caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. We are back on the Caregiver Dave Show with Dr. Nina and my co-host Adrian Gruberg. And I wanted to ask um, a couple of questions about uh, diabetes. Uh, the perception is that if you have uh, diabetes, you're probably overweight. And if you're overweight, you probably have diabetes. Is that necessarily true? Uh, it's not necessarily true. Certainly, um, people who are overweight, there's a higher risk for it. But it's not the case that if you are overweight, you are definitely going to have it. Um, certainly, healthy lifestyle measures are important, not just for diabetes, though. It's for many other conditions, hypertension, high cholesterol, all of which can lead to cardiovascular issues. And so regardless of whether there's that association or not, I, I would definitely highly recommend that having healthy lifestyle habits is really, really important. Uh, to avoid diabetes as well as other conditions that can definitely uh, be impacted by not being a healthy weight. Sure, we we know that people can lose their legs because of diabetes, right? Something about Absolutely. circulation, yes. and uh, they can go blind, and there's a whole bunch of other things that are just not good, so you should avoid it at all costs. And is diabetes genetic? I mean, if somebody's uh, parents, both parents were diabetic, are they going to get it, and, and do they have hope of not getting it by a great, healthy lifestyle? Well, there are two types of diabetes. One is type 1, and the other is type 2. Type 1 uh, is something that you often get in childhood. Type 2 is something that uh, comes on more later based on lifestyle. So certainly, if there's a family history uh, with any condition, you're going to be more likely to have it. Uh, but certainly, again, it's those modifiable factors that you can really have some control over it so that it's not an, uh, an inevitable uh, outcome for you. So it doesn't necessarily have to end in bad news. Correct. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, my wife also had um, 
her eye was twitching and it was like causing her a migraine. And so Dr. Tooley called it an optic migraine and gave her some pills, which was uh, also doubles as an antidepressant. But um, do you know what I'm talking about? What would cause an optic migraine? Uh, sometimes it's just an optic. So it, it's called a visual migraine. There are different words, migraine equivalent, visual migraine. Um, basically, the idea is that you're having visual vision symptoms, but not your classic migraine headache associated with it necessarily. And so we don't really know what isolates a visual migraine from a usual migraine. Even the pathophysiology of migraine is, you know, there are different theories out there. So the, the it was it was nice after thing, her cataract surgery, by the way. Oh, yes. So that's interesting. Um, not necessarily a correlation in terms of causing a migraine. The twitching in the lid, though, uh, that's often a localized muscle stimulation, which can be brought on by stress. It can be brought on sometimes by, you know, potentially maybe the speculum, if that was causing some irritation to the soft tissues around um, the eye, because we do open that a fair degree so we can access the eye to do the surgery. Uh, but it's not necessarily uh, causal to migraine per se or a, a visual migraine specifically. Uh -huh. There are other reasons for that. Sometimes if a person's at a stage of life where they've got, you know, their hormones are changing because they're perimenopausal or, you know, in that state of, of being, yeah. uh, that can certainly trigger different things that you wouldn't otherwise experience. Adrian, do, were any of your migraines optic related or visual related? No. Uh... <laughs> No, they were not. Um, you had but, them since you were four years old, as you, I remember you said. <laughs> but I started wearing glasses when I was about that age. Um, I, I've worn glasses a long time. Um, I, ha I had another question. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had a different question, though. Can I? Okay. Can I you that? certainly can. <laughs> Floor is when, yours. When I was a kid, it was a long time ago. <laughs> Cataract surgery was a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. People were very hesitant to have cataract surgeries. And now, uh, now that they just seem to put a new lens in, uh, I think the surgery that I had took 15 minutes. Not the prep and the recovery, but the surgery itself. What happened between then and now that that changed so much? That's a that's a great question. The the approach and the techniques have changed significantly over the years. So um, many decades ago, the approach was to use a large incision uh, where you would actually make a cut that would go a good degree around that circumference of your cornea um, so that you were looking at something that was potentially a centimeter or more in length. With that, people used to have to have sandbags around their, their heads so that it would basically limit their mobility to allow, allow those incisions to really heal. Um, mm -hmm. And so at that time, uh, before intraocular lenses were uh, uh, invented, sorry, people used to wear very, very thick glasses. So if you look at photos of people or your grandparents and things where they have those oh, coke yeah. bottle eyeglasses, 
Yes, that's because they don't, they didn't have that intraocular lens implanted. So as things evolved, the incisions became smaller and smaller, such that now we don't actually need stitches to close those large wounds like we did before. And because of that, the wounds are more stable, so you can go back to your usual day-to-day -day activities much quicker than you otherwise could. Um, the intraocular lenses, the reason people don't need a Coke bottle eyeglasses anymore is because of those intraocular lenses. The reason that's significant is the lens that we're born with actually focuses light to the back of the eye. When you remove that lens, the eye has lost the uh, contribution of that lens to be able to focus to the back of the eye. So unless you replace that with something in the eye itself, you need to wear it on your nose, which was where those uh, Coke bottle eyeglasses come from, came from. But now with advanced technologies, uh, also in allowing those lenses to go through those very small incisions, that's allowed for faster recovery, uh, less reliance on glasses that um, the Coke bottle eyeglasses in themselves had issues by causing distortions in vision and, and blind spots and whatnot, depending on the, the degree of the prescription. So we've really, really come a long way with that. Um, and so the surgery is uh, much quicker in terms of the technical aspects as well as the recovery aspects, which is fantastic for patients. It is. It was amazing. I was amazed. <laughs> I, I, I was amazed. Awesome. It went so well. <laughs> I was amazed. I want to ask you all. Go ahead, Amy. <laughs> That's wonderful. I want to ask you all the eye questions that I've had from an early age that I've never gotten answered, and now I have a great opportunity. Um, you know, you always hear about someone's eyeball popping out in uh, a traumatic situation. I mean, I think of Sammy Davis Jr., automobile accident. And um, if you've got the eyeball and it's out in your hand, can it be put back? They say, you know, if, if your arm is severed off, if you get it soon enough, you can stitch it back even. Even a penis, I'm told, can be stitched back if you get it soon enough. Is it true with an eyeball? With the eyes at this stage, we're not quite there yet where it, it's restorative for vision. I actually was involved with a case where someone was in a major motor vehicle accident, and when they were in the emergency room, the eyeball was actually on the forehead. That is a very, very rare occurrence. It does happen, obviously. Um, but in those cases, there's because they're, if you think of the optic nerve, so you've got your eye, you've got your optic nerve, and then all of that tracks back to your brain, to the center that allows you to interpret what you're seeing. So you can think of it as a circuit. So your eyeball is the camera, the optic nerve is the cable that then connects to the TV. So if you <laughs> sever that, because the cable uh, is made up of millions of, you know, millions of fibers, to align those properly is, I mean, it's, you can't. Um, at not this yet, stage, huh? <laughs> we, not yet, not yet anyway. And so, <laughs> so to be able to really restore that, um, you know, I'm not aware at this point, maybe it's happening somewhere in the world. I'm not aware of that, to be honest with you. I haven't heard of any reports where they've actually um, reattached a, a, an eyeball that's actually severed itself completely and, and you know, popped out of the out of its socket um, but that is the challenge the the visual system is so intricate and so um, your density of fibers nerve fibers is so high that in order to be able to simply sew the edges together I I'm not sure that the nerves would find each other on the right path um, in, in eye transplants are not an option either right 
Not at this point, no, not at this stage. So what if what if it pops out and it's just hanging there, still attached? Is there hope for that one? What makes an uh, eyeball pop on... out of its socket, I guess, is my real question. Well, it has to be a very, very, very severe injury where you've got such force that it's basically like being shot out of the eye because there's such buildup of pressure. Um, it would it has to be very dramatic in order for that to cause severing of the of that cable connection um, in the in the socket itself. So but has it ever happened? Um, typically, where it's just out and you can pop it back in and everything's fine. Uh, no, I can't say that. A lot of people when they're going still to have connected. cataract surgery, yep, still connected. A lot of people when they they're having cataract surgery or any eye surgery, they ask, will you know the eyeball be taken out and worked on on my cheek? Uh, it's not the case at all. The eyeball stays within its socket. And so that's where we use the speculum to open the eyelids and therefore, um, you know, approach the eye in its natural position. So in, in my nearly two decades, actually, wow, of practice, uh, there's been one case of, uh, of that that I've, that I've seen. Uh, but besides that, I've not seen any injury that's been so dramatic uh, and extensive that the eyeball's just been sort of hanging uh, this was literally on the forehead, but I haven't seen anything just hanging uh, on the cheek like that. Now what so. causes cross-eyedness, where someone's looking at you and the other eyeballs looking that way? Can uh, that be fixed or not? Yes, Adrian, so you say? Steve had strabismus, and oh. that was my late husband. And at his age, he, he had uh, six surgeries. The sixth surgery was when he was 21. And they severed the optic nerve. Oh so, no! Accidentally, so, I'm assuming. So, yeah, that would be an accident. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I mean, this was a long time ago, um, and we would have uh, ophthalmologists stop us on the street or wherever, or people would see him. It's funny; he was in cable TV. So you're talking about cable and TV and the optic nerve being a cable and television, it's all tied together. Oh, funny. But um, they would be telling him, you know, I can fix that now. And he, he would tell them, no, <laughs> not right. anymore. You cannot fix it. But they would, they would, always be insistent and there was no way so explain to dave with that <laughs> sure sure so again if you go back to that that analogy where the eye is the camera the the optic nerve is the cable and you've got your brain as the tv um basically when we're children when each eye is being utilized those connections are becoming stronger and the functionality of that cable is becoming stronger as the eye develops and as the sight is used what happens if there's a big difference in the eyes, whether it be because one eye needs a really strong prescription to help bring clarity to the site and the other one doesn't, um, that actually can disrupt that a development of the pattern of the um, signaling from the eye to the TV. Once that's disrupted, the eye doesn't have anything to really focus on. It doesn't have the same functionality that allows it to focus on a target. And so the eye drifts and that's why they call it a lazy eye. Now that can be, um, the development of those circuits can happen in childhood. Once you pass a certain age, 
the uh, ability for those circuits to develop diminishes, which is why it's really important for people who have children where they've got crossed eyes or the optometrist or ophthalmologist is recommending that the child wear eyeglasses. It's really important to do that because the objective is to challenge the eyes and allow each eye the opportunity to really focus in a way that's going to help build and develop the visual capacity within each eyeball. If one's weak, that's why you'll sometimes see one eye being patched so that this, you know, the stronger eye is patched, so it gives a chance, uh, the weaker eye a chance to sort of step up. And then once they're balanced, then, you know, you you're have both eyes uncovered. Once you pass that age, though, um, which can be up to 12 years old, then if there's a crossed eye, you're looking at surgery for more of an aesthetic correction as opposed to functional correction, where the vision capability in that eye is going to be uh, up to the point that that circuit was able to develop in childhood up to that age of um, 10 or 12, whatever that ends up being. It's variable between people, actually. Mm-hmm. So if they wait too long, then it can't be fixed, is what you're saying? That's correct. Can't they um, at least straighten the eye out so that it's when they're looking you straight in the eye, it's straight as opposed that to going that way? Can can they yeah. can they tweak it? So Surgically, you can by manipulating by surgically manipulating the muscles, you can straighten the eye out. Um, if it's not a huge turn, you can also use prisms sometimes in eyeglasses to to do that. Uh, but surgically is uh, typically the uh, approach that's used if you want a permanent correction from motil- yeah. from a positioning standpoint. And you see on TV, there's a lot of people who are saying, "Are they cross-eyed?" Or, you know? I'm thinking about Adrian. What's the girl's name who played Peter Pan for years and years ago? Sandy Duncan. Yes. Well, she had eye cancer. Okay, so that was more than just having a cross-eyed. Yes, she did not have cross eyes until the cancer. I see. And surgery. All right. Well, listen, we're going to take another break, so we'll be right back. Don't go away. We are a community of caregivers that understands and supports you wherever you are in your journey. We are a place to connect with other caregivers, but more importantly, a place to get practical, actionable help. There are lots of ways for you to get support. First of all, you can download our welcome pack. This will get you started on your Thrive journey. Next, you can ask and get answers to your questions by posting them here in our private Facebook groups. You can also get live online support by attending one of our live weekly Connect webinars. You can get practical, actionable advice by listening to our weekly podcast. You can hear and read other stories about other caregivers' experiences. Plus, add your own in our weekly Share Your Story forum, posted every Tuesday in the Facebook group. You can access essential resources and download practical Thrive Solutions Packs, all of which are geared to help you thrive as a caregiver. You get lifetime access to all of our resources. Again, we're here to support you and help you thrive and to enjoy your life as a caregiver. And remember, this is a place to get hope, not just cope. And we're back with my guest, Dr. Nina Ahuja and my co-host, Adrian Kluberg, <laughs> and I'm Caregiver Dave, Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show, caregiverdave.com, and you are an author, aren't you? 
Yes, that's true. So tell us about I, uh, your recent... book, Stress in Medicine. Who is the book for? So the book was originally written with uh, medical students and residents and early career physicians in mind. It basically is, uh, it's part memoir, part self-improvement, shares a lot of the stories in my own journey of medicine where I went through some really challenging times. And with the culture of silence in medicine, uh, it was not really comfortable talking about it openly. When the pandemic hit, uh, and there were closures um, within Ontario and, and everywhere, really, just when we didn't know what was happening at, at the start of it all last year, the medical students and residents were very, very stressed beyond what their normal stress level is, simply because of the disruption of their curriculum. And so with that, that brought back memories of my own time. And while a lot of those themes were common now, there was the added urgency of trying to offer support to these students given what was being added by the pandemic. And so that's where I uh, wrote the book to offer them some guidance and advice on things that I learned over time and to share some stories so they feel like they're not alone. Very timely. Uh, was it well received by your peers? The book has been received very well. Uh, there's, I received a lot of positive feedback. Uh, it's actually, I've got colleagues in senior academic positions who are recommending that it be mandatory reading for uh, health sciences students, medical students, nursing uh, wow. residents. So it's it's been it's been very well received. I'm actually in the process of trying to meet now with some uh, leaders at the different medical schools who actually uh, can hopefully evaluate the book and see if they can incorporate it. Uh, funding's always an issue, though. That's always the challenge when it comes to a lot of academic institutions. Sure. So fingers crossed that we can make a way, uh, make find some way to make it happen. Well, good luck with that. I hope you uh, continue to have time for your practice now that you're famous. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Not quite. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I would just imagine cataract surgery was uh, elective. Yes. That, yes. That it's, they had mm -hmm. to be to be very much affected by COVID. Absolutely. We were closed at that time for three months. Right now in our province, we're in another lockdown. Elective surgery is not happening uh, again. And it's been about three, actually four weeks now we're into this lockdown uh, where elective mm. surgery has been canceled. So it's hugely been impacted. We've got a huge wait list uh, well beyond what it was to begin with. And I understand that um, you also talk about the stress of a patient waiting to undergo surgery, that that's stressful too, yes? Absolutely. I think for patients, um, it's stressful, of course, because they're being impacted. As a provider too, it's uh, very stressful because we, you know, I, I care about my patients and I want to deliver them the care that they need so that in terms of eye surgery, so they can improve their quality of life and, and you know, start reading the books that they love to read, see the pictures of their grandchildren on the mantle of the fireplace that I've had patients say to me that, you know, this is the thing, first thing I saw and it's been two decades or, you know, 10 years since I, I've seen those yeah. photos. So it's, it's very meaningful to be able to offer people help in that way. Um, one of the other things that I do present in the book is, is that five-phase framework that I, I mentioned earlier, which helps people work through stress, and that can be applied by anybody, whether you're in a medical professional uh, profession or not, where um, it's, the acronym is ADMIT, encouraging you to admit that you're feeling uh, stress or challenges, where A stands for adapting to new ways, uh, D is doing the work, uh, or the task, M is measuring success, I is introspection, and T is transformation. So that the idea is, say 
you know, your, your parent or loved one suddenly has this new condition, you have to help them adapt to that new circumstance. So it helps you hone in on that aspect and say, you know, what can we do uh, in the case of, say, central vision loss, where someone's got macular degeneration, how can we arrange the surroundings and settings so that they're able to navigate and still feel some sense of independence? Uh, what supports need to be in place? And then that leads to the doing, where how can we execute that? How can I teach my parent to be able to do these various things in a way that's safe, they feel supported still, but again, maintaining that independence? And then you can set some measurable targets for them. So that, you know, if they were able to make themselves a sandwich one day um, and, you know, do something independent like that once or twice a day, then that becomes a measure of success that you can place for them to help them feel as though they're maintaining a sense of productivity. And then the introspection element, giving them and encouraging them and yourself as a caregiver to really think about how is this impacting you and what is that feeling that's erupting for you that needs some attention. So if you're feeling frustration, sadness, uh, resentment, any of those things, it gives you an opportunity to sit in that feeling in that moment. So then you can try to establish and find some coping mechanisms, whether it be different techniques uh, through mindfulness, meditation, exercise to relieve stress, uh, reaching out to other people for supports, so that that ultimately is able to then transform, which is the final phase of the framework, uh, into doing something that uh, is able to help you then cope with that situation in a more productive and positive way for yourself as a caregiver and for, for your parent or whoever that is that you're looking after. Yeah. So are you planning on writing a second book one day? Uh, not at this point. Uh, maybe eventually. Right now my focus is really on doing leadership uh, curriculum for uh, healthcare professionals. I'm putting together an online course which I plan to launch in September and a lot of this that is about emotional intelligence so that we're advocating for our own wellness which ultimately helps patient care if we're healthy we can provide better care and so all of those things become um, really uh, instrumental in, in future yeah. projects for me at this point very timely so is there anything else that you would like to say that we did not cover before we uh, sign off no, I'd just like to, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to be on your show, and um, I hope people have found the discussion helpful. Um, yeah. Certainly, I, you know, if people have questions, I'm happy to connect. I'm on both social media. My uh, Instagram and Twitter is at DocsLeadership, and I do have a website as well, uh, www.docsinleadership.org. So Very feel good. free to reach out. <laughs> and we met you at the National Publicity Summit. Uh, have you been on other interviews besides this one? Yes, I have. I've been on a number of interviews, um, so I've, I've been really uh, fortunate to have a lot of um, uh, good opportunities, met some wonderful people, and uh, I'm really appreciative of, of that entire experience and everything that it's brought forward, including it's this like interview. Being, so thank you. It's <laughs> like being on your book tour, huh? That's right, the virtual book tour right now. <laughs> so. Well, thank um, you very much for I coming know. on. We appreciate it, and uh, we will see everybody next time. So bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Adrian and Dave. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Keep breathing. Take it in and let it out. Keep breathing.